0: So we sing those songs. It matters not if they were written five minutes ago or 500 years ago. So long as they proclaim the truth of God's word, it will accomplish the purpose for which God has for it. And it is beautiful to be able to sing such true and wonderful songs like that. That we have a tradition like that as Christians that we can draw from is a gift that we too quickly overlook. Uh, and, and we would do well not to do that. We're going to be in Galatians 5 to start with, and then we're going to go to Exodus 33 and 34, and then to Matthew, and then back to Isaiah. We're going to be all over the place this morning. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If you've been at Providence for about 30 seconds, you've heard me say that over and over and over again. It is by far my most often used quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I use it all the time so much that you guys are probably sick of hearing it from me. Um, But when I first read that quote, somewhere around the age of 23, 24 years old, it changed everything about how I saw my life and the aim of my life, perhaps even more profoundly than I realized at the time, and I have made it my goal uh, since I read that and kind of internalized that reality. I have made it my goal to know God better and to spend my life in teaching others more about who He is. Which is why this series that we are in, "Things Too Wonderful," uh, is so close to my heart. And we're in a series that has two aims. One is to study the character and the nature of God, His attributes, and the second is that we would determine how we are then to reflect those attributes as His children. We call that the fruit of the Spirit, which comes from Galatians chapter uh, 5. Now that may sound like kind of a run-of-the-mill introduction. If you weren't listening closely, you may have just uh, moved right past what I had to to say there, you may not have really even paid attention to all the words and just kind of thought, all right, I'm getting settled in, I'll open up my Bible and just went right past that, kind of a ho-hum introduction. But if you stop and consider what I said, it is utterly extraordinary. We are told in the book of Galatians that we are to be like God. That is what we are told in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, that we are to be like God. That is absolutely extraordinary. We say it like it's nothing, but it should blow your mind. Now we saw this summer that there are ways that we cannot and should not attempt to be like God. But in this chapter, in Galatians 5, this is explicitly what Paul is telling us. That there are ways in which we are to be like Him. We are to reflect His nature to the world around us. So Paul is writing to this church in in, in Galatians, and he is in angst in this chapter. He sees that they were doing so well. He says, you guys were running so well, but you've lost your course. You've lost your aim. You've lost your direction. You were doing well. You were headed in the right direction, running with speed, and now you seem to have lost your direction. You've lost your mission. And he has angst over these people that he loves. And so he begins to push them, and he begins to point out the one thing that will help them in this race and that will bring them back onto uh, track. And he starts talking about the cross and he starts talking about the freedom that is theirs. If they will simply place themselves under the blood of the cross, then they will have freedom and freedom shall set you free. We talked about that a few months ago now. It is a freedom that is unmatched and that is unqualified. But it is not a freedom for which the Galatians should be able to engorge themselves on selfish pleasures, but it is a freedom from sin in order to pursue the unhindered love of God and of others. And then Paul kind of gives the secret sauce. He kind of says, this is how you do this now. Here's how you are to display these things. And this is the thing that separates Christians from all others. He tells us that as Christians, we have a choice to make. We can continue to pursue sin and all its false promises and its chains that rob us of our freedom or... We can keep in step with the Spirit. A military term that implies that we follow closely behind our leader, that we march in place, keep in step with our leader as he calls out the cadence. And we do exactly what he says. And then if we do that, we will then begin to be like God. You say, hang on just a second. My translation does not say anything about being like God. God? Does he got a, a kind of a weird translation? Is he reading from the message? Is that what it says in the message? Where does he come up with this idea that we're supposed to be like God? Because it doesn't say exactly those words. And it doesn't exactly. But each of these fruits of the Spirit, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, but each of these fruits of the Spirit is, is one that flows directly from the nature and the character of God. So when we call it the fruit of the Spirit, what we mean is is that it is a fruit that is produced within us by God Himself. Do you understand? It's not the fruit of our labor. It's not the fruit of our hands. It's not the fruit of our work like we just sang in this song. It's it's not the labor of our hands. That's not, not what it's saying. It's not the sweat of our brow that we produce this. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So what that means is that it is the spirit that produces it. It is the spirit that works within us and then displays us. And so what we can see is that this is God himself producing aspects of his own nature within his own people. And when we allow the spirit to do its work, we do in some measure begin to reflect more of those attributes of God himself. That should blow your mind. He shares aspects of his nature with his creation. He does not say we are so utterly separate that you cannot cannot have these things. Now there are some of those things, but there are other aspects where he says, not only can you have this, you should have this. Not only should you have this, so long as you keep in step with the Spirit, you will have this. So let's read what those are again. And reset ourselves and our hearts this morning. Galatians five twenty two, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now we've covered a lot of those. And this morning we're going to talk about gentleness. Gentleness. And I'll just be completely honest. I had no idea. I mean, I knew this was one of the fruits of the Spirit, and I knew you can talk about God being gentle, and there's some, some verse in there about a lion and a lamb being together, and it looks kind of fluffy, and it ends up on a bookmark or on like a, a cross-stitch thing that, that goes up on your wall or something like that. And that's nice, and, and, and that's really great, but what is it, is gentleness really something that you think of when you think of God. I mean, I, I'll ask you that question. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe your background is different than mine. Maybe you're you're reading in Scripture it just kind of jumps off the page at you. It, it jumps off the page at me now, but I'll tell you, it didn't. When I think of God, I think of a lot of different things. Gentleness is not one that jumps in there for me. It's just not. I think of a lot of different things. And remember, what you think when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Yet whenever I think about God, gentleness is really not in that picture. At least it's not anywhere like in the top 20. I mean, I can think about sovereignty, I can think about power, I can think about holiness, I can think even about his wrath, I can think about all kinds of different things about God. Somehow gentleness doesn't really make it to the top of the list for me. If you had to come up with that list, where would it come up? Where would you talk about God's gentleness? It just wasn't in my composite sketch of who God is. I can think of him as exacting and holy and righteous. David taught us last week that he is angry. He has a holy anger. I can even think of him as loving and powerful and sovereign. Gentle just really isn't there for me. All of that changed for me this summer. And I'll be darned, I forgot to bring the book in here. But I I read a book this summer. It's by a guy named Dane Ortland. I, I'll, I'll have a few out in the lobby afterwards, and actually I'll give away a few of those uh, at the end of this service, just, just a couple that, I, that I've bought. But it's a book called Gentle and Lowly is the name of the book. And this sermon is taken right from some of the words of those books. If I could sit up here like a kindergarten teacher and just read this book to you, I would do it. It is a fantastic book, one of the most powerful books I have read in a long time because it absolutely changed how I viewed God, And I hope that what we talk about this morning will just kind of whet your appetite just a little bit because there's no way I can convey all that the Scripture, just the massive weight that Scripture gives to this idea that God is gentle. So what I want to do is I want to look at three different passages this morning, three or four different passages, and I want to kind of pick apart a few different things, and I want to talk about primarily how God displays His gentleness as The Father and as the Son. And then I want to ask you what that looks like for you in your life. So, passage number one, we're going to be in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, actually, Exodus 33 moving into Exodus 34, going back to that uh, book. It's amazing how much you go back to the book of Exodus, how foundational it is for a lot of different things. In Exodus chapter uh, 33, Moses is in the, the midst of talking to God. He's praying to God, as if that's not uh, amazing enough, he has a request that he makes of God. And we talked about this when we went through it, but it's been a while. So in Exodus 33, verse 18, it says, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, if you're to ask God to show me your glory, what would you expect him to do at that point? What would you expect to be the response to that? I mean, think about it. God could have been pretty indignant about that request. After all, this is Moses, the one who led his people through the Red Sea, the one who orchestrated all that went on with the plagues and, and called down the plagues as God sent the plagues to, the, to, to Pharaoh. This is Moses who had seen Pharaoh and his, or Pharaoh's army swept away in the sea. This is Moses who had seen God do amazing things. This is Moses who had been at the burning bush with God. And then Moses comes and says, God, show me your glory. God could have said, what more do you need to see? You've seen all of these things, Moses. What are you asking for? How much more do you need me to show you? And yet, as he comes, God doesn't do any of those things. In fact, God responds in a way that I think would be completely uh, com- completely contradictory, at least unexpected, for any of us. Because when I think, God, show me your glory, like I'm ready for some lightning bolts, or maybe for a beautiful sunset on a mountain, or maybe, maybe he would stop the earth and the earth would rotate backward on its axis and he would show his control over the planets, or maybe something just amazing w- w- would happen that would just blow your mind that it could happen, that only a God could do something like that. Show me your glory, God. Maybe he would show just how utterly different he is than all of us in the sense that he would show his holiness and he would show give Moses just an idea of how holy he is. But in verse 19, God does something different. Here's what he tells him. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The Lord there, that is, I will proclaim before you Yahweh, the covenant name that he has with Israel. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When God says, or when Moses says, Show me your glory, God says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll tell you my covenant name, how I have adopted this people. I have brought this people in as my son, Israel. And then I'm going to talk to you about my mercy and my compassion. And that's how I'll show you my glory. That's not what I think of when I think of glory. I think of strength and might and power. But God says, I'll show you my goodness and my mercy and my compassion. I'll show you my covenant love. And how I adopted you and brought you in. God could have done any of those things. He could have shown so many things to Moses. But this is what he chooses to show. You know, we talked about goodness a few weeks ago, but when you take all of these things together, goodness, and you talk about mercy, you talk about compassion, you talk about forgiveness, you talk about covenant love, you take all those things together and you can summarize those and you can bring those together and you see this idea not of a God who is looking to display His awesome power, but a God who is looking to display His merciful love, His gentleness to His people. He has every right to be harsh, But whenever Moses says, let me see who you are, he says, I'll show you how I'm gentle. Completely contradictory to how we would think. If you want me to show you how great and powerful I am, I'm going to show you all the cool things that I can do, which are not really that cool, but I will try my best to do something really, really cool to show you how great and powerful I am. That is not Where God goes. That's not what He does. He doesn't send a storm or a lightning bolt. He doesn't cause any of these things to happen. He shows Moses His goodness. But let's just keep going. Exodus 34, verse 6. So skip forward just a few verses. Exodus 34, verse 6. So God says that's what He's going to do. And then here's where God does it. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We'll get to that second part of that here in just a couple of weeks, but the first part of this that I want you to see, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping that steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression. So God chooses to reveal even more detail about Himself. Of all the things He could have revealed, this is what He reveals. I mean, think about it. Who he's talking to with Moses. They, they, they just left Israel. They're kind of reestablishing their, their identity as a nation. Or they just left Egypt and they're kind of reestablishing their identity as a nation. And as they are reestablishing that identity, he could have said, look at all these things, these gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Let me show you how I'm better than all of those. Let me show you how I'm stronger than all of those. And he does that in the narrative. He does that... In each of those plagues, but he doesn't come back to that here. When he wants to show his greatness, he doesn't say, "Let me let me show you how much greater I am." He he easily could have done that. This passage in the Old Testament is the single most descriptive uh, way that God describes Himself in the entire Old Testament. It's not until we see Jesus in the New Testament that we get an even fuller picture of who God is. But if you're looking for one, one passage where God says, this is who I am. It's in response to Moses saying, show me your glory. And God says, let me tell you who I am. And he says, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Taking all these things together, it shows us the gentleness of God. Now, some of these fruits, as we've gone through them, we've talked about them, they are more focused on action. We talked about that with kindness, how kindness is really uh, kind of like a a, a love or a goodness put into action, then would be kindness. It focuses on what you do. But when we talk about God's gentleness, when we talk about the ideal of gentleness, what we're dealing with now is more of a disposition, kind of something that that all of his other actions kind of come forth from or really kind of set the stage and the direction for all that God does. It would have been just as easy for God to say, I am a harsh God. It would have been just as easy for him to say that I will draw out punishment upon you and upon sinners. He would have been just as right to do that. But the nature and the character of who God is, he says something different. And what we learn is that God's general disposition in himself and toward his creation is that he is a gentle God. Not soft like a teddy bear, but gentle in his compassion. His general disposition toward you, you a sinner, you a rebel, you an enemy. His general disposition towards me who fails and falls short constantly. His general disposition towards us is not one of anger or disappointment. It's not even one of discipline. His general disposition is that he is gentle with us. That is a kindness that we cannot overlook. It's not often how we think of him, but it's how he describes himself. Let's move on to the New Testament just a little bit and see how this plays out in the life of Jesus. And again, I'll ask the question. If you, to, if you had to list two adjectives, so just two of how you would describe Jesus, two adjectives, two attributes where you had to say, this is who God is, this is who Jesus is, what would be the two that you would list? A great teacher, maybe? He's a holy man. He's a good friend. What what would you list as this is who God is? There are only two in all of the Gospels that Jesus uses to describe himself. Only two. Powerful, that he's loving, that he's righteous, that he's demanding, that he's angry, that he's perfect. I mean, all of those would fit on some level, but, but what would you use to be the ones where you say, this is who Jesus is? You get to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And here you have the only instance where Jesus says, this is who I am. 11.28. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us who he is, what he wants us to know at his core. And what does he say? He says he is gentle and lowly. Those are not two words that we use often and I dare say they're probably not words we use of Jesus hardly at all. But it's the ones that He chose for Himself. Jesus wants us to see Him that way. As much as He is perfect, and He is. As much as He is demanding, and He is. As much as He is righteous and loving and powerful and all of those things, what He wants us to see Him as is gentle and lowly of heart. And these words taken together give us this idea of that he is meek, he is humble, he is tender-hearted, he is compassionate. Today, when we describe the ideal Christian, I wonder how long it would take us to get to meek and tender-hearted. Gentle and lowly. My guess is that's probably not going to be very high. We want someone who will contend for the truth. We want someone who will, who will do these certain things. We want someone who will care about social justice. We want someone who will do all kinds of different things. That's the person that we want to be. We want a, a fighter, a man with a backbone, a man with charisma. We want all of those things. And no doubt Jesus had those things. But what he wants us to see him as first is gentle and lowly. even that word humble, it doesn't quite seem to fit Jesus. When we use the word humble, what we mean is that we describe, use that to describe someone that is, that needs to be kind of brought down a peg to an appropriate standing, right? So when we say that someone needs to be humbled, what we mean is they aren't as good as they think they are. They need to be kind of brought back down to earth. When we, when we say a team got humbled in defeat, what we mean is that team thought they were really good. They found out when somebody, when somebody beat them that they weren't as good as they thought. And so they are brought down to a more accurate view of themselves. Humbled simply means you view yourself as an accurate picture of yourself instead of a high exalted picture of yourself. That's what we mean when we say humbled. But if Jesus were to take an exalted view of himself, that would be perfectly appropriate. He should be exalted. There's no need for him to be humbled, to be brought down a peg, to be brought down to a more accurate view of himself. The accurate view of Jesus is that he is high and exalted. But Jesus calls himself lowly in heart, humble. And why is that? It's because He understands His mission here on earth. And He knows He is under authority of that mission as He is sent by the Father. That He has come to save sinners. John 3.16 and 17. You guys know 3.16 well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' general disposition toward us sinners is not first one of condemnation, but of compassionate sacrifice on our behalf. Do you see that there? We are sinners. We we desperately need saving. We have rebelled against God. And when God looks at us, whenever he sends his son, he does not say, Jesus, go into the world so that you will condemn the world and you will show them how righteous you are and how unrighteous they are. He He says, don't go to condemn them, but go to save them. Go to give yourself up for them. Go to sacrifice for them. He does not say, Jesus, go be harsh with them. He says, Jesus, go save them. That is a gentle God that we do not deserve. But it is a beautiful picture. Does he have the right to be exalted? Yes, absolutely. Does he have the right to condemn? Yes, absolutely. But instead, he's known as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is not quick not quick to judge, quick to anger, or quick to reject. He is quick to accept, quick to open his arms, and quick to forgive. A quote from that book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. His arms are not open reluctantly, but willingly, because it is who He is. For instance, Jesus is not a reluctant Savior towards us. He does not hold His nose and say, fine, come on in. He runs to us, arms wide open, and He says, please, come. He is not slow to compassion. He is quick to it. He may be worthy of all praise and exultation, but He does not hesitate to welcome us into His arms. Listen to how Matthew summed up Jesus' ministry and His call to all who would be disciples. Not just in this context, but this includes us. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, he says this, lose his patience, he did not shrink back from those that were in need. He had compassion on them. When he looked out on them, he was not disgusted by them and their sin. When he looked out on them, he was not repulsed by them. When he looked out on them, his heart was broken for them. And he had compassion on them. We are in that number. He did not look on us and say, I am disgusted and repulsed by you. He looks on you and he says, my heart breaks for you. Come to me. Come to me and take on my burden, which is light. I am gentle. I am lowly. Come to me. I could just spend the next two hours reading passages like this over and over and over from the Gospels that portrays the gentleness of Christ even at a time when a harsh word would be warranted. How he cries with his friends when they grieve. How he prays for his persecutors on the cross. How he cares for his mother even as he dies on the cross. How he looks out over Israel that has rejected him and is about to uh, be instrumental in his killing, and he weeps for them as a mother hen weeps for her, or seeks to protect her, her, ch- her chicks. He weeps over Israel because he, his heart breaks for them. Would he be right to condemn them? Absolutely, but instead he weeps for them. Jesus' heart towards us is one of compassion and gentleness. So how, do you, how does this affect you when you see this? I promise you, if you start reading the Gospels today, just start flipping through there and read a couple of stories here and there. Read about some of his miracles and see how much it talks about, how how many times it says, and Jesus had compassion on him. The more you see this, the more you see this start to just jump off the page at you. Where harshness is warranted, gentleness is what is met. How does that affect you whenever you read that? you just chalk that up to say that that's just Jesus being Jesus? Good old Jesus. He's a good guy. Is that, is that all that that does for you? Just say, oh, that's good. Jesus is nice. He's like a soft teddy, but he's like a, he's like a puppy dog. You have to understand that he, he has full authority and power to do whatever he wants. And yet he chooses to show compassion. do you recognize when he he prays that there would be more laborers, part of what he is praying is that there is more people that would see with those eyes that did not first look to judge and condemn, but instead would look with compassion to help and to meet needs and to care and to show the love of God. He's praying for you that you would have those eyes, that you would be that way if we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus and we are going to keep in step with the Spirit, if that is going to be who we are, if that's how we're going to be known, then we must be people that are gentle people. You go on social media to find a gentle word is almost impossible, especially the next two weeks. Are we known as a gentle and compassionate people? I'm afraid we are not. What about you? Are you known as a gentle spirit? If I can just be completely honest here, this is a really hard one for me. I can be a kind and gentle guy sometimes. I hope that most of you probably know me in some measure uh, as that way. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not overflowing with empathy as much as I try. I'm not. I know that I'm not. And and I pray that God will will increase that in me. But I can be at times. Especially to to you guys. But there are times when that, that compassion, that gentleness, that ability to be that kind of person just leaves me. It's just like it's not... There anymore. Things that just kind of grind on me and that just kind of set me off. You've probably got those things too. Where, like, generally you can kind of make your way through life, but when so this kind of thing happens, you're like, I just can't, no, not gonna not gonna happen. For me, I cannot stand whining. I just can't stand whining. My kids are champion, world class at whining. They are really, really good at it. I cannot stand whining. I cannot stand a victim mentality. Where you're just looking for other people to blame for your situation in life. When the reality is, that's just the way it is. got to figure it out. you got to deal with it. you got to move on. It'll, it just exhausts me in a hurry. And it never exhausts me more than whenever my kids do it. And gentleness can just be hard to come by. And, and let me just tell you this too. I am absolutely right and justified to, to feel that way. There is... No, no, I, the grumbling and the whining, I am justified to have anger against that. The victim mentality, I am justified to teach and to, to push against that for my kids, because if you go through life that way, it will ruin your life. You cannot just blame other people for the situation you're in and do nothing to work against that. So I'm right, I'm justified here, right? Right? I'm not like I'm not making a joke. This is not pulling bunches. I'm right and I'm justified in this to push against this. Complaining that so and so did this and so and so means you're not responsible for it. That will not go well with you in life. That's a ticket to a to a poor future. So I'm right to feel this way. But somewhere along the way and I don't know if I actively decided this or if it just kind of happened or maybe it was just kind of a Uh, like something that just kind of seeped into me by osmosis, but I decided that if I'm right to feel this way, then it means that I'm justified to let all compassion and gentleness just kind of exit the building. That if I'm justified, then there's no need that I have gentleness that follows that. But when you look at Jesus, he is obviously justified to call people out, to hold them accountable, to be harsh with them, to fill them with shame. He is fully justified. But instead, he chooses to open his arms, to heal their wounds, and to offer an easier yoke for them. I cannot tell you how much this has challenged me because I honestly don't know that I could have failed much more than I have in this area, especially when it comes to my family. Y'all use time hop, time hop. I'm telling you, I bring it up a lot in these sermons here recently. It is a cruel taskmaster looking back on life. For y'all that have like younger kids, it is a great thing for you right now. It will break your heart here in a few years, but it's a good thing. It is over. I, I keep it because it's a good thing. And right now, I get these pictures that pop up a lot like one, two, three, four years old kids. My kids now are uh, 11 and 13. And so I get these, these pictures of these little kids and their little voices and their cute little Halloween costumes and all this kind of stuff. And you look at it and you say, oh, this is great. And it makes, your, it makes you smile and it makes your heart hurt kind of all at the same time. But you know what hurts me the most? It's not just that I won't get those days back that I know when they were even that age, as cute as a button, I was exceedingly harsh with them at times. That even as I look at those pictures and I think, look at how delicate they are. I know I was not in any way gentle. And some of that, lots of that is because I felt justified in what I was doing. Because I was the dad that needed to discipline Because I was the dad and I needed to set order. It breaks my heart to know that my kids will likely grow up and see me more as a harsh person than a gentle person. If you're here and you've got young kids, yes, be a disciplinarian. Yes, set them right. Yes, push them in the right direction. But as someone who, who is looking back on Time Hop and realizing I don't get those days back, do not be harsh with them. And I'm still terrible at this, even though I know how much it, it just hurts my own heart to look back on these days. I'm still terrible with this. I still haven't figured out how to navigate those waters. I'm still praying that the Spirit would produce this in me because so often it seems so lacking. Don't be harsh people. Don't be harsh people with your own family. Don't be harsh people with your own kids or your your spouse. Don't be harsh people with with people that that you see on on social media that are saying dumb things about the election. I don't know who you're voting for, but I can promise you, whoever you're voting for, the other people are dumb. Like, that's just kind of the view of things in life, right? Right? People are going to express opinions and, 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 and talk about things. And our tendency would be like, you're an idiot. How can you believe that that is true? How could you absolutely go in that direction? It, it's, got to, it's got to be more obvious to you. Don't, don't, don't be so. And our tendency is that we are harsh with people. We see sinners sin and we are harsh with them. We see blind people walk in circles. Because they don't know where they're going and we're harsh with them and we're we're saying, Hey, how can you be so blind? Quit walking in circles. Can't you see where you're supposed to walk? Well, no, they can't because they're blind. Would you be compassionate and walk with them and show them the place to go? Or would you yell at them and tell them not to walk in that direction? Don't be harsh people. God has shown me compassion when I deserve the harshest shame and punishment. Yet my heart so often, my heart so often does not reflect that back to others. If I had time, I would go into all the ways that the Spirit shows us compassion. I'll just say that the the, the Spirit, Jesus calls the Spirit the comforter. The helper. That, that enough is enough for us to know what he, who he is and what his mission is. So the Spirit comes to comfort us and to show us compassion and to help us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all gentle with us. Gentle does not mean that they turn a blind eye. It's what, it's what Exodus said. It doesn't mean that I, that I turn a blind eye to iniquity. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But they are still gentle with us. I wish I could just read more of these. I wish I could study more of these. Think about just a couple of other verses that we've got to look at here. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Talks about how Jesus is our advocate and our intercessor. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. He says, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our, our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. It doesn't say, who is, who, it, it, it doesn't say we have a high priest who is able to, to condemn us for our weakness. Since that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And look what it says. It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, Jesus is not beset with weakness, but he is a man. And he knows our weakness. And according to the writer of Hebrews, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. I hope that is a comforting truth for you this morning. That in your ignorance, in your sinfulness, you can know that God deals Gently, with you. I'm going to give us one more passage. One I've read a hundred times, I've quoted a hundred times more, I've used it in counseling a dozen times, and I have totally missed its meaning. And I'm going to bet you might have too. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on them. So again, there's the, the gentleness. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And then verse 8, the one we know so well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your Thoughts. Now, how do we use that passage? How do you use that passage? I'm going to bet you use that passage the same way that I did. You quote that verse and you say, God's just smarter than us. He just knows more than us. His ways aren't our ways. He's a mysterious God. We can't fully understand why He does things. I know this terrible thing happened to you. I know this thing happened that makes no sense out in the world. I know that these things are going on, but you know what? God's ways are not our ways. He's just bigger and he's better. He's different. God's different. That's how we use that, right? It's not an altogether wrong application of that verse. But do you see what I, what, what's being said here, what Isaiah is writing, what God is communicating to us? Why does God tell us that his ways are not our ways? What is the problem that he's responding to where he feels he needs to put that kind of disclaimer on things? Look back in verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So why do we need to understand that God is different than us and that his ways are not our ways? Because he is gracious. And God feels compelled to tell us, you're not going to understand my grace. You're not going to understand why I pardon the wicked. You're not going to understand why I accept those that are far from me. You're not going to understand why the unrighteous man can come to me and I will take him in. Because what makes sense to us is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he has sinned, he gets punished. And whenever you come or someone else comes and you say, wait a minute, God, how can you invite that person in? How can you have open arms for that person? God knows if we see that as it truly is, we're going to say, what in the world just happened here? That doesn't make any sense to me. And God says, that's right, it makes no sense to you because my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I will do what I will do. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. For I'm slow to anger, quick to forgive, arms are open. When God should be repulsed by us, instead he draws near to us. That is the paradox of the Christian faith. It is the heart of the Christian faith. He doesn't move away, but instead he moves toward. Not toward us in an effort to condemn us, but to forgive us. It makes no sense to our human fallen brains. In our worldview, we move away from those that have offended us, that have betrayed us, that have hurt us. If nothing else, as a self-protection mechanism. We move away, we condemn, and we look for vengeance. But God moves toward us. God deals gently with us when he has every right to be harsh. Friend, this morning, I don't know if it's beyond belief that God would save you. It should be. If you're not a Christian, it may be beyond your your belief that God could forgive you, that He would welcome you in. But He does. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you struggle with sin and you have put yourself under Christ and you said, Christ is my Lord and I trust in His saving work on my behalf. It is still just as mind-boggling that He would save you. But don't let Satan use that to destroy your faith in Him and destroy your confidence in the cross. Because yes, it doesn't make sense that even after you have given your life to Him, you would continue to sin and He would continue to welcome you back. But He does. He moves toward us with compassion and that movement toward us never stops if we are in Christ. It should move you to tears of joy, shouts of celebration. He is gentle with us. So how about you? How do you take this and now put it into action? Where do you go from here? If it's a fruit of the Spirit, how do you put this into action? I've already told you I'm terrible at this. I don't have a, a step-by-step guide that says, do this, do this, and do this. But what I can tell you is that the Spirit will work within you. And if you call upon the Spirit, the Spirit will answer. And is sanctification slow, it is painfully slow. Is it difficult to be more like Him? For some of you, it will be, this, this will be the most difficult. For others of you, this is a natural kind of, like a, you, you're already kind of generally a nice guy. But this isn't just about being nice. This isn't just about being gentle to someone you don't know. This is about when you know the worst about someone, it is still gentleness that overflows from you. It's not natural. It's not easy. But it's what we are called to be. And if we keep in step with the Spirit, it's what we will be. My call to you I believe it is the call of Galatians 5 and the call of the entire Bible. Do not be harsh people, even when you feel it is warranted. Be gentle people to show the love of God to a world that realizes they don't deserve it. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you because you are gentle. We do not deserve to be able to come before you, but we have an advocate in Jesus. We have an advocate before you who intercedes for us. Why? Because you are gentle. Because you do not deal with us as our sins demand. But instead, you place those on Christ. Father, I pray that you will convict those in here that have been harsh, with coworkers, with employees, with bosses, with with friends, with family, with children, with spouses. And I pray that you would open their eyes just to the need to be gentle and that you would change our hearts and our actions that we would be gentle. Father, help us. If it is your Your heart that is produced within us. Your nature and your character that is produced within us by the Spirit. And yet you call us to His Father. We just pray that the Spirit would do its work. And that you would grant us sanctification in this area. To be more gentle. Compassionate people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.